You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Joseph Allen, Associate Professor of Exposure Assessment Science and Director of the Healthy Buildings Program. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Tuesday, December 14th. Dr. Allen, do you have any opening remarks? So sure. So first, thanks so much. Um, and uh, my only opening remarks, normally I've had something prepared, but um, I think I'll just get to questions. So my only opening remark is a thank you to um, Nicole and everyone else at the Harvard Comms team. And they've been doing this for a long time and hosting these uh, sessions. I know a lot of my faculty colleagues have participated. It's a great way to get a lot of information out quickly. So a special thanks to the Harvard uh, comms team is my only uh, opening comment. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and also um, a reminder, if anybody needs uh, information from this call later on, we'll try and post these all out on the website as well. So um, uh, if you didn't quite get your notes down, um, uh, try and check on the website in the next couple of days and this should be posted there as well. So you can use this during the time we're out as well. All right, um, let's see, first question. I am muted. Okay, there. Sorry about that. My question is really about the current situation here in New England, and I think across the Northeast that we seem to be in a really bad uh, Delta surge right now. And I'm wondering, uh, there seems to be sort of patchwork of restrictions going up here and there. What restrictions do you think should be imposed? And uh, what's likely to do any good at this point? That's a great question. I think what we're experiencing is something that we all knew and predicted was coming uh, right about now, just like we saw last year was a rise in cases. Uh, and I don't think anyone thought that the Northeast or uh, anywhere in the North was going to be immune to the, um, the Delta surge that we saw tear through the, the South. Key difference being, uh, at least in some regions like New England, we have a much higher rate of vaccination. Um, I think some key things have, have to take place, and I think there already are. One, well, first, let me take a step back and think about risk. I think too often we've been um, relying on one number to characterize what's happening in the country or the region. The two most important determinants of risk are age and vaccination status. I am still seeing way too many pieces getting written and, uh, and graphs being shared that show one number for the whole region or, or kind of conflating that issue. So risk is really different by age and vaccination status. And we're really fortunate in the Northeast uh, to have high vaccination rates, in particular high vaccination rates for the most vulnerable. So I, um, I don't think this is going to be like what we saw in the South, even with a higher number of cases. Now, certainly the case numbers are increasing. I've been tracking the Boston wastewater data. I've been tracking that for over a year. Uh, and we're above the peaks that we saw um, last uh, last winter, which is expected because Delta is much more transmissible and the economy and society is a lot more open than it was last year at this time. The difference is uh, a case in a case in an eight-year-old is very different from a case in an eight-year-old uh, and a case in someone who's vaccinated is very different from someone who's unvaccinated. In terms of the strategies to get to your point, the strategies that we need to deploy, we need to double down on these on vaccinations and get um, vaccinations out to a wider group of people more quickly. I'm still hearing reports, even in Massachusetts, of friends and colleagues and acquaintances who are waiting days and days, sometimes weeks, to get their shots. That's unacceptable at this point. So we need to push vaccinations. We also need to push boosters. It's becoming clear. The benefits to that third shot, the booster shot, are really clear in terms of bringing up protection uh, from any infection uh, for Delta and certainly for, it looks similar for Omicron. That's going to be the case. So it looks like to me that uh, this is quickly going to become a uh, fully vaccinated is going to mean 
three shots. If you've had two uh, mRNA shots, you're gonna need a third shot or a booster shot. So that's number one, two, we should continue to push uh, to get uh, kids vaccinated. My th own three kids are vaccinated. I think that's absolutely critical, uh, particularly to help with or slow the spread in the region. Uh, third thing is, and we've seen this with the Baker administration, I thought did a nice job of uh, uh, increasing the availability of rapid tests, particularly in lower income communities, right? These tests, unbelievably, are still uh, hard to find and they're expensive. By me, it's still $25 for two tests. Uh, they're free in Europe. So we need to expand the use of these rapid tests quickly. And I like that move by the Baker administration, not just increasing the number of tests that are available, but also making sure uh, that those most in need actually get the tests. I think those two things will go a long way. Vaccination, three things, vaccinations, boosters, uh, and rapid tests. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hey, thanks. Can you hear me okay? I, I can hear you. Great microphone. So you mentioned um, the three main things you mentioned did not include masking. And um, there's a lot of um, public health people kind of shaking their fists at Governor Baker saying we should have a statewide mask mandate. Where do, where do masks fit in? Should there be a statewide mask mandate? And would that save lives? So let's be clear, masks work. Um, I've been a big proponent of universal masking for a long time. I think the vaccines change that. I don't think the path out of this pandemic or even through this surge is masking the vaccinated. I think when they have um, places where uh, everyone is vaccinated, uh, then you don't need to wear a mask. That's the policy that was just put in place uh, in New York, for example. So it's either vax or test. Uh, and I think that's right. So, I mean, we should be crystal clear. If you're unvaccinated, your risk is extraordinarily high right now. If you're an adult, uh, absolutely, you should be wearing a mask. I think the conundrum or the difficulty is from a policy standpoint, how do we convince people who won't take a life-saving vaccine that they should mask? That's where the most benefit is going to come if that took place. But the people who are not vaccinated at this point, the adults who are not vaccinated at this point are also the people who are unlikely to wear a mask. If you're vaccinated and boosted, um, there's little additional benefit to having that mask, to, to masking. I don't think that's gonna be the policy lever that's most important at this point. I also wanna say we have all the tools in place to meet everyone's uh, acceptable risk level. If that feels unacceptable to you, you should be vaccinated, boosted, and absolutely wear a high efficiency mask. If you're doing that, if you're vaccinated, boosted, and wearing a, a really good mask, um, that provides about as good as protection as anyone can get. So as a public policy matter, then you don't think it, it would be worth, basically worth the trouble to um, put in a mask mandate in Massachusetts as a handful of other states have done? Well, I actually like what they did in New York City, uh, which is mask mandates in public spaces. And, um, but if you have fully vaccinated, if you're, if you're fully vaccinated or you have people who have tested, that I don't think it's gonna provide that much additional benefit. So are you all set? Yeah, thanks. Okay, uh, next question. Hi, Dr. Allen, thanks for doing this. You actually touched on um, two of my questions um, in, in, those, in those first two, but um, I was gonna ask, because I know Boston is considering some sort of 
um, vaccination for entry um, policy for things like indoor dining. And I was curious, um, you've mentioned you just liked New York's um, policy. So I guess my first question was just if you'd um, elaborate on that and what, what do you think? I know Boston also has a mask mandate, but would you um, be advising some sort of like either masks or vaccination required policy for, for indoor public, public places in Boston? Yeah, we should have been ma mandating vaccine vaccination uh, for entry a long time ago. Uh, I've been to New York many times this fall. It, it's terrific. Um, I, I wrote about this in the Washington Post in August. The voluntary approach to vaccination hit its limit. We knew this in the summer. We knew we'd be in this spot in November, December. And the only way to push us past uh, this plateau we were on in our vaccinations were for vaccine mandates. And they've been very effective. We saw a lot of companies do this on their own ahead of the formal moved by the government that's now held up, by the federal government. Um, and that's been very effective. We've seen it in uh, the US military. That's now, what, 96, 97% vaccinated after the mandate went in. We've seen this uh, in uh, unionized workers. Look at uh, New York City again for uh, emergency medical workers, police department, fire department, where over the summer in August, they were hovering at about 50% vaccinated, plus or minus maybe 10%, depending on the group. Now they're all up in the 80s and 90%. So the vaccine mandates are something that we've been really far behind on. We should have been doing it uh, several months ago. I absolutely think we should be doing it right now. Um, and I think, I mean, it's clear, it is clear that people who are vaccinated are much lower risk for severe disease uh, impacts of this virus. People who are vaccinated and boosted are at much lower risk of any infection. Uh, we have the tools at our disposal to really tamp down spread and also the worst impacts of this virus. Uh, and I, I don't understand the reluctance uh, for organizations to, to not mandate uh, vaccines at this point. And then my other question that you also uh, touched on earlier, I know you monitor um, the Boston area of wastewater data. And, um, and I, I feel like over the last week, we've seen it kind of peak to these all-time highs. But Kind of given how do, how do you how should people be interpreting that data, um, especially kind of given the vaccination rates here and what you were talking about earlier about how now we're um, in a in a situation where there aren't like as many um, restrictions as there were before. Yeah, though, I, though I've been looking, I've been tracking those data for a year, and uh, the, the key difference is that uh, you know December twenty twenty is twenty one is very different from December twenty twenty in terms of the controls and the protection. So. Uh, and we're a lot more open as a society than we were last year, and we see this, uh, these high number of cases, but um, we have very high vaccination rates for those most at risk, uh, those who are older in particular. So um, I think what I've been writing about, and I started writing about this in March, looking at the wastewater data, is that uh, what we hope to see is a decoupling of cases where the wastewater data is a great early indicator uh, of cases, um, but at this point, it's, cases are not, the, um, are not the only metric we should be tracking as an indicator of, of community risk. In fact, I think an under-discussed uh, issue is the, is the CDC's use of two metrics that are, quite honestly, really deeply flawed uh, to set things like masking uh, requirements or recommendations, right? They're tracking solely tracking cases and percent positivity. And I've written about this uh, several times, and so have other infectious disease epidemiologists, how uh, some of these metrics are, are just uh, not appropriate for the moment. So I think the same thing about wastewater monitoring. I love it as an early indicator of, uh, of spread. Uh, at the same time, I think it's not 
and just like cases, it's not an indicator of uh, community risk. It's an indicator of community spread. Okay, thanks. Uh, and if you're wondering what the case the wastewater numbers are, there is a link to that in the chat, uh, the Boston wastewater numbers. Um, so there's a chart in there, you can see what those are. There's a little uh, lag in that reporting too. I think I think the last date on there, I forget, maybe uh, two or three days ago. Uh, yes. And at least the peak, at least in one of the regions, uh, looks like it's, uh, well, the peak didn't continue up. It looked like continuing down, whether that stays on a plateau at that peak or is actually the start of a turn, we don't know. What was interesting last year, if you remember this, the wastewater data actually predicted a turn in cases earlier than the case data. Uh, and even before the vaccines hit, so we actually saw, if you look, I can post a thread. I have a thread on Twitter going for since last year, but it was about mid-January we saw the, the it start to turn the wastewater data. And then sure enough, we started to see case data, hospitalization, death data follow that through uh, the end of January and February. So it is a really nice early indicator of, uh, of spread. I think the challenge though, of course, is uh, you just don't know is this spread in um, uh, you know 20 year olds who are uh, who are are less risk at, le uh, at less risk than uh, an older population and, and the, the vaccination rates um, will determine the risk. Uh, next question. Okay, this time I'll, I'll remember to unmute. Okay, um, well, I think a lot of people are wondering how to deal with the upcoming uh, holidays. And it seemed like we did see a surge of cases in, in Rhode Island where I lived after Thanksgiving. Um, what do you recommend for the many of us who um, have either been vaccinated but not boosted or have our boosters but haven't waited a full two weeks for them to really take effect. Should we be uh, skipping Christmas parties or if you're just vaccinated but not boosted and you're not elderly, is it okay to go ahead and celebrate the holidays normally? I would say definitely it's okay to go ahead and celebrate the holidays. Uh, I think this is what the vaccines have afforded us. Um, and so a couple things there, right? If you're, if you're uh, fully vaccinated under the current definition, you've got your two shots, um, you're very well protected from severe disease, hospitalization and death from the Delta variant. And there's a reduction in the protection against any infection from Delta, and Omicron as well, but and it's more severe in Omicron. But that said, you have that, you have that protection. I would gather with other people who are fully vaccinated. I think that makes a lot of sense. I would also get your booster and I think there's a slight misunderstanding out there on how quickly the vaccines and boosters take effect. If you look at even the vaccine vaccination data, uh, it is true that we say, you know, two weeks past the second dose is when you're fully vaccinated, but you get the vast, vast majority of protection after within 10 to 12 days uh, of that first shot. Same thing with the booster, right? If you got boosted today uh, by Christmas, you will have excellent protection because think about it, what the booster is doing. It's essentially re, uh, it's reawakening your immune system to the virus. And just like if you were exposed in the community, you wouldn't expect your immune system, you're vaccinated, you're exposed. You wouldn't expect it to take two weeks for immune system to kick in and protect you. In fact, it kicks in immediately and you start to, maybe you have mild symptoms a day or two, and then your immune system starts uh, winning the battle. So the same thing with the booster. Right? So you actually see the effects within that first week uh, of protection. It's not quote unquote full protection, more time the better, but you actually get a benefit. So I, no, we shouldn't discourage anyone from getting a booster today thinking it's too late. 
uh, for Christmas. And certainly it's not too late for New Year and that whole uh, the week between Christmas and New Year's. So, so it's important for people to even if you haven't been vaccinated and you want to be protected by Christmas, get your first shot today. Uh, and you're right at the cusp there, you know, you, you just you'll just get it in in time to have uh, excellent protection, not full, but uh, the vast majority of it kicks in after the first shot. That's that's good to know. Uh, can I ask a quick follow up on the rapid tests? I've taken a couple when I've gone to visit um, friends who are high risk, immunocompromised people. I take it right before I see them. Uh, but I feel like there's still a lack of understanding about when, why, when and why to take um, rapid tests. Yeah, thanks for asking that. I should have brought that up in my answer, but, and I agree with you. And, and it's a little surprising that there's still so much confusion out there because um, this is a message that's been, um, uh, many of us have been talking about for a long time now, but um, so I, I think it's straightforward. The, 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 what rapid tests do, what rapid antigen tests do is answer the question, am I infectious right now? You think about it, that's the question we want answered when we visit people, right? PCR will tell you, is there any virus in your body, right? So it could be a little bit. It could be three weeks after infection and you're no longer infectious. The rapid tests answer, are you infectious in this moment? The perfect time to take them is day of. They are a day of test. In other words, uh, you should take them the morning of, uh, the morning before you see people, uh, before you leave the house to go see high-risk friends, and it'll tell you if you're actively infectious. And they're highly sensitive and specific, despite um, what people have, people have been saying early on um, with these tests. If you're vaccinated and boosted and you have a negative rapid test, you can feel quite confident uh, that you're, that, that, uh, well, you're not infected and also that you're not a threat to somebody else, even somebody else who's very high risk. So again, this is a tool we should have been using uh, 15 months ago. Uh, and I'm hardened to see that it seems like uh, the federal government has bought into these literally and figuratively in the past couple months. And so have uh, regional leaders like Governor Baker um, and, uh, and several other states and cities are starting to do, including Boston, Mayor Wu. So, uh, so this is an underutilized tool. They need to be a lot cheaper, right? It's, people aren't going to use these regularly if they cost even $10 a pop or $5 a pop. They need to be a dollar or free. We should be, these things should be free and everywhere uh, because then people will use them. Hey, it's easy, you know, but if you think about some people getting together for the holidays, maybe you're with five people, 10 people, 15 people, start multiplying that by $10 a test and it's no longer cheap. We've, we've created a barrier to using one of the most effective public health tools we have. It's been totally and grossly underutilized uh, throughout this whole pandemic. All right, thank you. Thank you. Next question. Hi, me again, thanks. Um, I wanted to ask you, kind of following up on a um, question about the holidays, can we um, talk again about travel? I've heard that planes are very safe because um, they change the air so often and everyone's wearing masks, but what, I, as someone who just bought an Amtrak ticket, what, what <laughs> how about trains, how about buses? Do we need to worry about those? What the, what's the ventilation like? Yes, I'm glad you brought up airplanes. It's something, and so a little credentialing. In 2013, I was one of the lead authors of a National Academies report on um, uh, infectious disease transmission in airplanes and in airports. And I wrote a piece in the Washington Post early on in the pandemic, probably May 2020, um, pointing out that you don't get sick on airplanes, really, 
And, uh, and I think that surprised a lot of people, but that message has finally gotten through, I think, which is good. And yeah, it comes down to the basics. Look, one way to think about it before we get into the details and trains and buses, we see very little of any spread outdoors. Well, why is that? We have unlimited dilution, unlimited ventilation. So we need to make the indoors a little bit more, a lot more like the outdoors by either bringing in more outdoor air, increased dilution or cleaning that air through filtration. So if you think about these fundamental principles, and even more fundamental, how are, we, uh, how are we exposed, and this was missed for an entire year, respiratory aerosols are generated just when we're breathing or talking, constantly emitting these plumes, they travel beyond six feet, we need to dilute them. And on an airplane, you can get 10, 20 air changes per hour. Uh, and just a reminder on how that works, you get air from outside, virus-free air, of course, bled off the engine, it's called bleed air, conditioned, brought into the cabin, 50-50 mix, of outdoor air plus recirculated air, all recirculated air going through HEPA filters. And it's better than that. And here's something that uh, most people miss or beyond this. Unlike an office building or school where air might come in from one corner of a room and leaves the other side, where you have imperfect mixing or, or even dead zones, in an airplane, the air is delivered to each row and exhausted at your feet at each row. Meaning you have very high ventilation effectiveness. So not only are you dumping a lot of air, and all that air is getting filtered or clean, or the half that's recirculated is filtered through HEPA filters, which are captured just about everything, or just about all airborne particles. Uh, you have high ventilation effectiveness. So this is why we don't see spread on airplanes. Can it happen? Absolutely. There are no absolutes uh, in a pandemic or anywhere. But if you look at the, even over decades of research on uh, transmission on airplanes, there are a handful of clusters related to air travel Meanwhile, we have billions and billions and billions of passengers. It's just not the hotbed of transmission people think. That said, I always caution and give the same warning we gave in 2013 that during boarding, well, the ventilation and filtration only work if they're on. Filters are useless if there's no air passing through them. When gates, when planes are at the gate, they're not always running their ventilation systems. We warned about this in 2013. I was out at Boeing a couple of weeks ago talking about this again. And confirmed that their policy is or their recommendation follows what we said. They're advising airlines to do this. I have been on many flights this fall and measured the carbon dioxide concentrations and it is showing what we warned about and in our studies have shown high CO2 during boarding is telling you the ventilation system is not running. So despite uh, our uh, recommendations and, uh, and, uh, and the science showing higher risk or higher lower ventilation rates during boarding, uh, at least from my anecdotes and traveling this fall, it's not clear to me that airlines are running their ventilation system when you're at the gate. So that's an area that I would pay most attention to if you're, uh, if you're traveling. That's uh, the, uh, the highest risk part of your travel related to the airplane is, uh, is definitely during boarding and, and deplaning until that ventilation system is running. Uh, in terms of uh, trains, I've been traveling on trains uh, to New York City back and forth. In fact, I go there Thursday again. Um, I haven't studied the air quality on trains, so I'm relying on what's reported by Amtrak, and they're reporting a fresh air exchange rate of every four to five minutes. So that's a high air exchange rate, um, right? So every four, every uh, four to five minutes, they're reporting a, a turnover of air. And to put that, uh, and so what's that air exchange rate, right? So it's uh, uh, twelve to fifteen air changes per hour. So. Um, Put that in perspective, so that's similar to what was on an airplane. So I haven't verified that. I've done measurements in airplanes, so I can speak about it firsthand. I haven't done measurements on, on uh, trains. But to put it in perspective, uh, 
and we wrote about this in a JAMA article on uh, recommending a target of four to six air changes per hour. JAMA article came out in uh, March, but a home gets about half an air change per hour. Schools get about three air changes. Uh, hospitals recommend four to six air changes for patient rooms. So that should put these high air exchange rates uh, in perspective in terms of what's happening on uh, trains and, and planes. But one area I know uh, that, I, that uh, I think about a lot, but I haven't seen a lot reported on is what's happening on buses. I think a lot of these um, buses that don't have uh, uh, ventilation or operable windows, or when it's cold, the windows aren't open, the, uh, you could have very, lo very low ventilation, kind of like we have in cars. And so we've done some modeling on cars, which would apply the same way to buses, or the recommendation would be, if you have windows, they should be open even an inch, a little crack. If you have windows open, we've done this on school buses and cars, you will get very high air exchange rate and the uh, risk of airborne transmission will drop significantly. Uh, also, if you're running your air conditioning or heat, it should not be on recirculated mode, right? You wanna be bringing in fresh outdoor air. You just don't wanna be recirculating that air because the filters that are in a car or bus are not the kind that are gonna capture uh, a lot of these airborne particles. So uh, buses, cars should be having their air on off recirculated mode and windows open even an inch or two uh, will help a lot. Thank you. I have a question. It's kind of going along with Felisa's question. Um, he's looking for any travel advice specifically for parents with kids too young for boosters or even a shot and whether you may might have an, any assessment of the claims that kids are seeing more serious cases with the new variant. Uh, at this point? Yeah, so I think there's two, a couple things wrapped up in that. The first is just to clarify um, the vaccines, not necessarily just boosters, right? The vaccines are not approved for those uh, under five, even under emergency use authorization. So not about the booster question. Um, and so if you're talking about five to 18 year olds, uh, the boosters are available for the oldest teenagers. Um, but current recommendation is to have uh, the, the school age kids, five to 18 is vaccinated. Uh, and the older teens who are, have the booster available uh, get boosted. If you're talking about younger kids it, under five, I think uh, fortunately younger kids are at much lower risk uh, than adults, right? Still the hospitalization rate for the, for the youngest is on the order of one in 100,000 uh, and even can even be lower. So the, the, uh, their risk profile is really quite different. I think the best thing to do if you're concerned is get everyone around them vaccinated. So you think about your I have three kids. I know what they were like when they were younger. They're going to be around you the most. You should be vaccinated and boosted. So should their siblings if they have older siblings. Um, and then if they're in a high risk area, uh, or, or uh, then masking uh, is recommended. So, um, and I think that also gets to individual uh, risk tolerance again, because I again the, the overall risk to kids is low. And the best way to protect them, and Tony Fauci has been saying this for a long time now, the best way to protect kids in general is to get everyone around them uh, vaccinated. At this point, I would add, get vaccinated uh, and boosted. I think that was the entirety of the question. I think so. Uh, what to do if you're traveling with small kids? And uh, yes, I think that's it. Let's see if there are any other travel suggestions. I, for what it's worth, I've been traveling um, with my three kids. Uh, they're 15, 12, and 9. I was traveling with the 12 and the 9-year-old before they were vaccinated, able to be vaccinated. I felt very comfortable doing that. Uh, again, I feel like their risk is, is low. Uh, people around them were vaccinated, but we were on planes and trains and, and, uh, and going to see shows and gone to sporting events and taken vacations. Um, I think 
there's really maybe the only good thing about uh, the only way we've been spared uh, in this entire pandemic is that the, the risk to kids has, has stayed um, low. Um, and I, I think there's, I think that, oh, I know the second part of that, the last part of the question was the Omicron. How does this change things? I think this is, it's all really quite new. I, there's another report that just came out today out of South Africa. I think some of the early reports on higher hospitalization rates for kids, uh, follow-up report showed that some of that might be, or uh, have to do with whether you're hospitalized with COVID or for COVID and disentangling that. And there was a high, it looked like a, a very high percent of kids hospitalized from the early data were hospitalized with COVID, not for COVID. The new report today suggests a higher risk for kids, although it has to be taken in the context of the overall risk level uh, and whether or not, um, you know, we're still starting from a low risk standpoint. I think the data are, uh, it feels early. It's something clearly that we're watching. I mean, if that changes, that's a game changer uh, in terms of, uh, of risk, but I don't suspect based on what we've seen that it is going to be game changing in terms of uh, dramatically changing the risk profile um, for, for kids who have fortunately uh, fared well in the majority. Thank you. Uh, next question. Um, just another one. I was I was curious. I don't know if this is too early to ask, but based on what we know about the Omicron variant, is does that change any? Does that change in any way how you think about um, ventilation? You know, uh, it's a really good question, and uh, my answer is it doesn't. And the reason it doesn't change my recommendations on ventilation and filtration is because we got those recommendations right over a year ago. In fact, almost two years ago. First piece I wrote, February 9th, twenty twenty talks about ventilation, filtration, portable air cleaners with HEPA filters. As far as I know, I still think we're one of the only groups to set a ventilation target. That should be stunning to people that, uh, that none of the other standard, no standard setting body has actually come out and gave targets to the public. It's been a real uh, miss in terms of our pandemic response. So the question is about, um, you know, do we change anything? And the answer is no, because I, I think we were um, correctly stringent right from the beginning, recognizing that airborne spread, airborne spread was dominant, and we put in controls to protect against that. I think what Omicron changes, in fact, what Delta changes, is that if you didn't do this, and you had someone infectious in your building, and you didn't have an outbreak or cases, maybe you got lucky. I think the margin for luck shrinks with Delta and Omicron. So it's imperative uh, that people follow these recommendations on ventilation and filtration. I'm heartened to see that now when I see long lists of control measures uh, recommended by CDC and others, ventilation is always in it. Every news story now has ventilation. That wasn't the case for an entire year. Um, and so I think, uh, I think people know it. I don't know if everyone has done it. And by it, I mean uh, enhanced ventilation and filtration controls uh, in a building. And so, but I want to make clear that it's not expensive and it's not hard, right? It, and it's not too late. You can make improvements today that would dramatically reduce the risk of airborne spread in any building. We've given tips on this. There's plug-in, you can use a portable air cleaner, the HEPA filter size right for the room. You can get that four to six air changes per hour instantly, instantly, uh, while you think about kind of the longer term 
control strategy or how you're going to enhance or upgrade your ventilation system. But uh, too many times I've heard it's hard, it's expensive, there's long lead time, I can't do it. I, I think that's all nonsense. I think it's excuse making. And quite honestly, I'm tired of it, uh, of, of hearing those excuses. It, it, we're 20 months into this, the guidance has been out there, the tools are there, the money is there. Uh, there's really no excuse for not um, uh, pursuing these healthy building strategies at this point. Do you have a follow-up? Um, no, I think I think that answered it. Actually, um, um, just to go back to something you said earlier, though, um, talking about how you didn't understand the reluctance of organizations to require vaccinations. Were there, are there any organizations like here in Boston or, or Massachusetts that um, that you think should be that that aren't right now? I think every organization should be doing it. Uh, I fully support the uh, the vaccine mandate from the federal government. I was uh, I wrote about it before it happened. I, I uh, I think there were many companies that took action uh, well ahead of any formal mandate. It, it's good. So it's good public health and it's good business health. This, I mean, look around, look what this pandemic has done to lives, livelihoods, the economy, entire sectors have been absolutely devastated. We have been given a tool that can end this with the vaccines. Uh, so it's, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, uh, it's surprising to me, the reluctance here. And I think the early efforts were, I think the Biden administration does an excellent job of providing access to this vaccine, making it easy to get this. Uh, the doses are there, the sites are there. Where I think they and others failed is that it was clear this summer that the voluntary approach wasn't going to get us to population level immunity at 80, 90% or greater uh, vaccination rates. Fortunately, in New England, we've hit that with our most vulnerable, uh, the oldest, but uh, it was clear we should have acted a lot earlier uh, in, in, on, uh, on these vaccine, man vaccine mandates. I mean, I also don't understand why we, why we treat these mandates, uh, vaccine mandates as if um, it's some kind of affront to our liberties uh, we do this routinely all of the time. Uh, so somehow that narrative has taken hold that this is something uh, different. It's really not uh, something we've done all the time, uh, all of our life uh, and really effective. And so uh, clearly you can hear my voice. I'm quite frustrated by this. Uh, and I, I, think the, I think the mandates are the way to uh, move us off this plateau. Uh, um, especially as we have Delta surging, uh, Omicron on the horizon. And it's clear that not only the vaccination, but boosters are going to become an important, important part of this story uh, right now and in the coming weeks. Thanks. Uh, next question. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for giving me another pack of this. I just want to make sure, because um, for some reason, the question of the day is uh, mask mandates. And I want to make sure that I understand what you said. You don't think that a mask mandate is really gonna have that much of an effect in Massachusetts and we should be focusing more on vaccine mandates. Is that fair to say? Or... Well, I think first and foremost, we should be focusing on vaccinations and boosters and rapid tests, definitely. I also think uh, ventilation and engineering controls are important. Um, in terms of masking, you know, my position, I've written about this in the Washington Post is that in a fully vaccinated environment, I don't think people need to be wearing a mask. Uh, and that's really consistent with New York's policy that just came out. So, um, so that's where I really stand on it. I, and I, 
I, I, you know, in theory, if everyone wore a mask all the time, I think that'd be great. I, I don't know if people have been outside of some of these centers. Doesn't you don't have to go very far outside of Boston. In fact, you can be in Boston, and you see that the appetite for this uh, is low. So I'm not even sure that's going to have a major effect, uh, as some people think. You know, maybe in an idealized um, sense. Quite honestly, I think uh, we made a mistake for many, many months by requiring or having these uh, strict mask mandates when risk was really low last spring, over the summer, uh, and even early this fall, because um, fatigue has set in, and understandably. And I think we've taken uh, the power of this tool out of our arsenal by failing to roll it back at the appropriate time so that we could put it back in place at an appropriate time. I think we've done ourselves a disservice there. Uh, and I think the public is um, largely uh, frustrated by, by that messaging. I think when they knew it was low risk at certain times, yet the public health messaging stayed on code red, uh, even when it wasn't uh, by region, I think that did us harm uh, in terms of our ability to reinstitute some of these. So my position, you know, if you're, un if you're not vaccinated, you need to get vaccinated. Uh, or you need to wear a mask or your risk is really quite high. And uh, I, like I said earlier, I think the challenge is that how do we expect people who are not taking a life-saving vaccine that they're going to uh, continue to wear a mask everywhere? So if you were an advisor to the governor, you would say this is not going to be effective and it's not where you would focus. Yeah, I I, right. I, I, I kind of laid out where I think the... Uh, what strategies would have the biggest benefit and where we need to be spending our time and attention. Um, I also think that right, people should be able to wear, anyone who wants to wear a mask should absolutely continue to wear a mask. But the benefits of mask uh, are not only when everyone's wearing a mask. Uh, if you're wearing a high efficiency mask, you're very well protected. So I think we've reached that moment um, that might feel uncomfortable for a lot of people and that um, you know, some of this individual decision-making really is going to matter. Uh, and I understand people being reluctant at different points uh, to pull back on controls, um, but we have the tools to keep people safe. We do. So in public settings where people are, um, where you're mixing, uh, you don't really know the vaccination status of people. Yeah, I think masks make a lot of sense. And I've been clear about that. I think if you're unvaccinated, you should be wearing a mask. I've been very clear on that. I think the distinction is, is more, I think New York has the right approach uh, where those, all of those same rules apply, except if you're going into a venue and you're either vaxxed or you test negative, then you don't need to be wearing a mask. And I, I, I support that approach. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Ellen, before anybody else raises their hand, or if you have a question, go ahead, please raise your hand. But while we're waiting, uh, you had mentioned uh, in when I asked you what you could talk about today, what returning to the office would look like in the coming months, uh, and also setting goals and expectations that determine our response to the pandemic. Uh, would you like to talk about those and what? how do you see returning to the office and schools in the next few months, when well, most schools are back, but um, returning to the office in the next few months and how you think Omicron could affect that? Well, I think a lot of office, well, schools are back, thankfully. That was a, one of the biggest mistakes uh, of the entire pandemic was closing schools. And um, uh, offices are, many offices are coming back. I think there's still a high level, a level of anxiety. And I think Omicron is uh, contributing to that. And understandably, 
Um, so I think what's going to happen, I expect this conversation to be even more robust over the coming weeks, is a little bit what I wrote about in the New York Times in August with my colleague Helen Jenkins at Boston University School of Public Health, which is at some point the country is going to have to have an, a, a conversation about what our goals are, because it's not clear. Now, if the goal is zero COVID, that's long gone, but you would, it would lead to a certain prescription of policies. Uh, if you're managing cases, it's a certain set of policies. If you're managing towards hospitalization, severe disease and death, that's a different set of policies. I don't think the administration or even uh, regional leaders have been clear about what we're trying to manage. Some are talking about, you know, um, uh, if, if we're managing and it's no longer a crisis or there's not a threat to the healthcare system, we're gonna manage it one way. I honestly think that's where a lot of the disagreement is uh, happening, even with uh, experts is that we've actually failed to set or talk about what our goals are. And I think Omicron is gonna change that, uh, especially as you see that it's uh, leading to a higher number of breakthroughs, particularly pe for people who are, who are not boosted. Uh, at least that's what the early data suggests. So we're gonna have a lot more cases that hopefully continue to be mild cases in people who are vaccinated, the vast majority, uh, and boosted. So I think the country is gonna have a lot more of this uh, conversation in the coming weeks and months about what our goals are. I think the same applies to businesses as we think about what does that mean for return to business? Well, what is your strategy in your company? If it's absolute zero spread, you cannot ever have a case, even if everyone's vaccinated and it's a mild case, uh, then one set of policies would be put in place. I've done this forever. We can design buildings with zero spread. There's no question. Uh, the problem is at some point there is a uh, an impact on uh, how that space operates uh, and functions. So I think uh, businesses are going to be facing that going forward. Where I'm optimistic is that what I hear from the business community is not a, um, uh, oh, you know, anything around once we're done or out of the, the crisis phase, you know, we're all done, plexiglass goes away, uh, and it's uh, back to the old ways. I hear a fundamental shift uh, in how they're thinking about their buildings, so specifically in my domain, where healthy buildings is not a a one-off that we dealt with uh, or needed for the, the, the COVID crisis, but it's going to be part of an operational shift as the C-suite continues to pay attention to just how important buildings are uh, for the health of their employees, but also the health of their business operations. In fact, it's, in fact, it's existential for some of them. So I'm optimistic there that, um, that one of the key learnings coming out of this um, will, will be a, a continued emphasis on uh, these healthy building strategies. Uh, great, Dr. Allen. Oh, I was going to say too, I mean, you had a paper that came up fairly recently about that, about buildings and ventilation, poor ventilation actually making workers more tired, more sluggish, and less productive because of the, because of the poor air quality. Yeah, we've been writing about this. So my Lancet, uh, the task force that I chair, we put out a report on schools in particular and talking about all the benefits from these healthy building strategies in terms of COVID, but also the many multiple benefits that come with it better reading comprehension, better math test scores, uh, fewer asthma attacks for students. Same thing applies for commercial office space. We just completed a global uh, study of office workers and cognitive function and find that higher ventilation rates are associated with better cognitive function of workers. So that's why these strategies are so important. They help against COVID, help against influenza, other respiratory diseases, but also help uh, or provide these multiple positive benefits and our study showed better cognitive function and worker productivity. So it's really a win-win situation. There's really no reason why you shouldn't adopt these, um, these strategies. It's good for the moment, but it's also good um, going forward. So 
Um, but like I said, I'm really kind of excited um, by the conversations I'm hearing, particularly in the business community, that this is not one and done in terms of uh, improving your building, that this is going to, this healthy buildings movement is going to sustain. Thank you, Dr. Allen. Do you have any other final thoughts for us before we go? No, thanks to everyone who uh, joined us. Appreciate all the, the good questions. And um, thank you. Hope you all have a nice holiday. This concludes the December 14th press conference.